Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A primetime opportunity to prove the threat to American democracy. The lead starts right now. Tonight... New voices and new video, more than a year after we all saw the deadly Capitol riot playing out in real time. What we're learning about plans tonight to show the American people how individuals and groups plotted and schemed for months to overturn the will of voters and keep Donald Trump in power. Plus, the ramped up security plans after the FBI says an armed left wing would be assassin wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice. Also today, the alarming new study showing a risk to babies' brain development if their mothers had COVID while pregnant. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're just hours away from the first 2022 hearing from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. In prime time this evening, the committee tells CNN, they will present findings that they say prove President Donald Trump was at the center of a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. This hearing, it's not just about the mob that stormed the Capitol that day. This hearing is about a months-long campaign to undermine democracy in the United States of America. A president and those around him desperate to hold on to power at any cost, even if it meant destroying the American experiment. Even a willingness to take away legal votes from American voters. This evening, we're expected to hear excerpts of tape testimony from some of Trump's closest supporters and possibly even his family members. We're also expecting to hear live testimony from a U.S. Capitol Police officer who was severely injured fighting off the MAGA mob. Also testimony from a documentary filmmaker who was embedded with the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, members of which were indicted for seditious conspiracy earlier this week. You might also remember Trump during that one presidential debate telling the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. This hearing is only the first of three officially slated for this month, with others likely to be announced soon. It comes at a critical time. The former president, Donald Trump, is still spreading baseless lies about a so-called stolen election. He is still weighing another run for the White House, where he could very well employ these same anti-democracy tactics to secure a win. And many others pushing those same lies are currently running for House, Senate, and governorships this November. CNN congressional correspondent Ryan Nobles begins our coverage today with the committee's massive undertaking so far and the crucial question that they need to answer this evening. It has been almost 18 months since rioters violently stormed the U.S. Capitol, breaking through windows, attacking law enforcement, and coming within seconds of members of Congress. And for more than 11 months, a group of nine members of Congress have been investigating what led to that day, including former President Donald Trump's false claims the election was stolen. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, 
and everyone knows it. And Trump's inaction for more than three hours as the Capitol was under siege. The idea that all of this was just a rowdy demonstration that um, spontaneously got a little bit out of control is absurd. Uh, You don't almost knock over the U.S. government by accident. The January 6th House Select Committee has done most of its work out of the public eye, but there is still quite a bit that has come to light. They've interviewed more than 1,000 witnesses and collected more than 140,000 documents, like text messages to and from Trump's then-Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that he was sending leading up to the riot. What people are going to understand about the Meadows text messages is how horrible they are. CNN obtained Meadows' messages, including this lengthy text from Trump's son, Don Jr., from November 5th, before the election had even been called for Joe Biden, where he outlines how his father and his allies would try to prevent Joe Biden from taking office. Don Jr. telling Meadows, we have multiple paths, we control them all. Another part of the committee's aim, to draw a straight line from the attempt to subvert the will of the voters to the riot on January 6th. All of my colleagues, all of them knew that what happened on January 6th was an assault on our Constitution. They knew it at the time, yet now they are defending the indefensible. The committee has also interviewed Trump's immediate family, including Don Jr., his fiancée, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Trump's daughter, Ivanka, and her husband and former senior White House advisor, Jared Kushner. Some of that video could be played tonight. Other Trump associates stonewalled the committee leading to criminal indictments for some. What lingers over the hearings is whether the committee has uncovered enough to expose Trump's role on that day. What was the president's role? We know some of the things about what the president did, certainly in propagating the big lie before that day and and what he did uh, at the rally that day. But what was going on at the White House? And if the information could lead to Attorney General Merrick Garland to prosecute those responsible for attempting to undermine the election and inciting the mob, a task that may be their biggest challenge. And so the big question is, what will we learn that is new tonight? Obviously, there's going to be new video we haven't seen before, new testimony that we haven't heard before. But the committee seems to be indicating that they are prepared to lay out their central thesis that Donald Trump is specifically responsible for a conspiracy to undermine the election results and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. Today is just the first stage of that argument, a process that will continue throughout the months of June. And Jake, it won't end until they issue their final report this fall. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. President Biden just spoke about tonight's hearing from the January 6th committee. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's traveling with President Biden in Los Angeles. Caitlin, what, what did the president have to say? Jake, the president said he thinks people are going to learn a lot about what happened on January 6th as they watch this first primetime hearing on what unfolded that day inside the halls of the Capitol, but also, as Ryan noted, what happened leading up to it. And the president said that there are major questions unanswered that he thinks people will be looking for the answers to. I think it was a clear, flagrant violation of the Constitution. I think these guys and women broke the law, tried to turn around the result of an election. And uh, there's a lot of questions, who's responsible, who's involved. I'm not going to make a judgment on that, but I just want to know that I want you to know that we're going to probably be, a lot of Americans are going to be seeing for the first time some of the detail. 
notable, Jake, that he said he is not going to make a judgment about who is responsible. But this is something that is coming up in conversations with world leaders. He was sitting there with the Canadian prime minister. This is something he said he believes a lot of Americans are going to be preoccupied with. We should note he's got an upcoming meeting with the president of Brazil, who Jake, of course, has doubted, cast doubt on President Biden's election, saying he believes it was a suspicious win, which, of course, it was not, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. With me to discuss CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel, who's broken numerous developments concerning the committee's findings so far. Also with us, George Conway. He's a conservative lawyer and a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks one and all for being here. Jamie, let me start with you. In a preview of the hearing, a committee aide said the American people will see, quote, new evidence and will be shown, quote, unseen material related to January 6th. We've been covering the insurrection for a long time. Is there really a lot we haven't seen or reported on? There are things even you and I have have not seen. Imagine tonight as a prosecutor opening arguments to a jury. They're going to lay out not just uh, what we're going to hear tonight, but throughout the hearings. And there are going to be witnesses we have never heard from before. We're expected to hear from Ivanka Trump the president's daughter, possibly Jared Kushner, maybe Donald Trump Jr. But we're also going to hear for the first time from former White House officials, uh, former administration officials. I believe we will hear from former Attorney General Bill Barr, who, as you know, played a critical role because on December 1st, he said to then President Trump, there was no significant election fraud. Right. And, and that is key because, once again, it goes to the committee's argument that he continued down a path where he was repeatedly told there was no fraud and he was repeatedly told what he was doing could end in violence. So um, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser had a piece in The Times the other day in which they talked about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump trying to kind of like chart their own path and uh, heroically not uh, supporting the president's uh, lies and his... his uh, you know, deranged ranting about the the election. Do you think it would have any impact if, and I have no idea what they're going to show tonight, whether they're going to show the Ivanka Trump video or Jared Kushner video or whatever, but if there's video of Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump saying, no, there was no fraud, there, there was no widespread fraud, I told my dad it's not true, blah, 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 would that have an impact? Well, I hope it does because, I mean, I think it's going to be visually arresting to actually see these words come out of these people's mouths. On the other hand, I mean, I don't think we actually need a new smoking gun to, to show that there was a widespread conspiracy led by a president of the United States to overturn American democracy. The evidence that we've seen, you know, that has been dribbled out, out over the last 17 months is pretty substantial as it is. And all I think the committee really needs to do is to lay it out in an orderly and compelling fashion. I mean, we don't need a smoking gun. We've already got, um, I mean, a, a, a battlefields worth of artillery, um, smoking artillery. And, you know, I, I hope that's what they lay out. They help lay out uh, more of the detail that we haven't so, seen. Jamie, former Trump uh, cabinet member Betsy DeVos, the former right. secretary of education, she spoke out today about January 6th. Um, and she, she talked about on that day, maybe uh, invoking the 25th Amendment, the cabinet votes to remove a president because he's not well one way or another in an interview with USA Today. Take a listen. Okay. I felt that uh, there were things that the president could have done to stop the activity, to turn it back, to um, avoid all of the uh, the, th- the things that ensued. And um, it, it, it was just a bridge too far. I had conversations with a number of my colleagues. And um, and then importantly, I, I also spoke with the vice president and he made clear to me that that was not a direction that he was going to move in. 
This is the first time we have heard from a member of the cabinet at that time Correct. about it possibly invoking the 25th Amendment, even though they ultimately didn't do it. Correct. We've heard this on background, but this is the first time we are hearing on the record a member of the cabinet confirming that these discussions went on. And again, a super Trump supporter, right. a very conservative Republican. I mean, her bona fides uh, in the MAGA movement until today, probably. Uh, are unquestioned. Correct. And she also said something in the interview that will be key to the committee. She said, when I saw what was happening on January 6th and didn't see the president step in and do what he could have done to turn it back or slow it down, it was obvious to me I couldn't continue. And she resigns. Again, the committee is focused on not only what Donald Trump did leading up to January 6th, but what he didn't did not do. do. He didn't stop it. Correct. Um, it's not just Trump, of course. We're getting new audio recordings of others, including uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy in the days after the January 6th attack. This is new. Let's take a listen. We cannot just sweep this under the rug. We need to know why it happened, who did it, and people need to be held accountable for it. And I'm committed to make sure that happens. Right now, he's really only committed to sweeping it under the rug. Um, after this tape came out, Eric Erickson, again, very conservative uh, a radio host, he tweeted, Kevin McCarthy wanted to investigate January 6th before he didn't. The man has no principle or spine, and the GOP should not trust him with few, for their leadership. What do you think? They shouldn't. And, and he's been cowed. And the fact of the matter is, any normal reaction for that, from that day, what, 187 minutes when President Trump did absolutely Nothing to tell these people to go home was shocking. And that's why people were talking about the 25th Amendment that day, even though they'd been previously talked about it basically from the beginning of the administration. They were talking about it that day because he was really, you know, he's there watching television apparently and, and gleefully. He wanted this to happen. And um, the irony about that, about, you know, Mike Pence did the right thing on January 6th insofar as he um, followed his constitutional duty when it came to the electoral vote count, but he should have. He should have stood up under the 25th Amendment, and, and they should have found him un, found Trump unfit for office. In fact, it would have been the easiest way to protect the country at that point of time, because the way that Section 4 of the 25th Amendment works is that if the cabinet and the, and the vice president certified the president's unfit, the president can contest that, but the vice president is acting president until Congress acts, and Congress had 21 days to act. Yeah. And it would have run out the clock on the administration, and we wouldn't have had the problem of a madman still with the control of nuclear weapons in the White House. And possibly coming back to the White House and winning the election by hook or by crook or completely legally. We'll see. Uh, Jamie Gengel, George Conway, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Tonight's hearing could also be revealing for people who were at the Capitol when that mob arrived. I'm going to ask an officer who was brutally attacked on January 6th what he wants to hear tonight. And... The PGA Tour takes action and suspends 17 golfers participating in a tournament backed by Saudi Arabia. But do the reasons for the suspensions, do they go far enough? Stay with us. Back with our politics lead, the chairman of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th is revealing new details about what we should all expect during tonight's primetime hearing. Democratic Chairman Benny Thompson says viewers will see, quote, significant video testimony from individuals who have been charged, convicted, and or pleaded guilty to crimes on January 6th. Let's bring in former D.C. police officer and CNN law enforcement analyst Michael Fanone. He, of course, was helping to defend the Capitol on January 6th and was viciously attacked by members of the mob. Thanks so much for being here. We always appreciate it. What's the number one question you would like to hear answered this evening? 
Well, as a police officer, one of many that uh, fought at the Capitol on January 6th, I want to know what the hell Donald Trump was doing for 187 minutes while myself and hundreds of others, uh, other police officers, were fighting for their lives. Do you think if he had issued a video statement then, as opposed to much, much later, and if he had issued a strong video statement, that that could have really made a change? Yeah, I mean, I saw the, the video statement that he put out. I've seen it numerous times. Um, at best, I think it was disingenuous. Uh, I think he should have been doing everything that he could have possibly done uh, to end that uh, violent insurrection at the Capitol. The committee is going to call Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards to testify this evening. She was injured that day uh, in a fight involving members of the Proud Boys. Um, what do you make of their decision to use an officer as one of their first witnesses? I think it's important. Um, first of all, I commend Carolyn Edwards for coming forward. I know how difficult that is firsthand. Because um, you get a lot of heat for it, a lot of attacks, social media and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was going to be my advice to her. Uh, tell the truth and stay the hell off of social media. <laughs> but, um, yeah. no, I think it's it's very important for the American people to uh, see the violence of that day. Uh, it's been a long time since January 6, 2021. Uh, this is kind of, you know, courtroom tactics 101. Um, you know, a prosecutor's going to bring you back to the, uh, the scene of the crime. Yeah. The um, House Republican leadership, uh, McCarthy and Scalise and, and the rest, uh, have been trying to make the argument that this is just political, this is just Nancy Pelosi trying to go after her opponents. I want you to listen to a comment McCarthy said today about who's responsible for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. You said both publicly and privately after January 6th that you thought Trump bore some responsibility for the attack. Do you still feel like he was in any way responsible for January Look, I've answered that many times. I thought everybody in the country bared some responsibility based upon what has been going on, the riots on the streets, the others. Everyone in the country bared responsibility for January 6th. What do you, what do you make of that? Um, listen, I, I mean, I, you know, we can go into the weeds about, uh, you know, our um, the state of affairs in the United States and, and uh, you know, the, the culture that we've cultivated here. Uh, but ultimately, what he said on January 11th was accurate. The president of the United States bore responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Um, you know, saying that is, uh, I think, just a, a way to avoid the reality of, um, of his party's responsibility in, in those events. You said you're, you think that former President Trump will get off the hook and emerge unscathed, even though... Uh, you obviously hold him responsible for, at least partly, for what happened on January 6th. Is there any part of you that, that thinks these hearings are an exercise in futility? I, I'm not going to say that it's an exercise in futility. Um, I mean, it's important that the record, um, somebody makes the record, you know, keeps it straight. Somebody assembles uh, the information. Um, you know, we hear from witnesses. I guess, if for nothing else, just the historical record. Um, as far as whether or not it moves the needle, uh, I just don't see that happening. All right, Officer Michael Fanone, 
I will be talking to you a little uh, later on in our coverage. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. And you can join me in just a few hours for the attack on democracy, the January 6th hearings. Our special coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Coming up next, security stepped up ahead of controversial decisions expected by the U.S. Supreme Court and a threat to kill one of the nine justices. Stay with us. The House of Representatives will vote next week on a Senate-passed a bill to provide enhanced security to Supreme Court justices and their families. The legislation passed the Senate by unanimous consent last month before it stalled in the House, angering some lawmakers, including Senate Mitch, Senator Mitch McConnell, who slammed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for slow-walking its passage. His ire even more forceful yesterday in the wake of the arrest of an armed left-wing would-be assassin near the home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Authorities say the suspect traveled from California to kill the justice. As CNN's Whitney Wilde reports for us now, law enforcement in Washington are gearing up for a potentially volatile next few weeks when major Supreme Court decisions are expected on abortion and on guns. searching the home of a California man charged with attempted murder after he told police he wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice and then kill himself, he said, to give his life purpose. Upset over the leak of a draft ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and the possibility that the court could loosen gun laws, authorities say 26-year-old Nicholas Roski went to Justice Brett Kavanaugh's Maryland home with a gun, zip ties, and other tools. But after seeing two deputy U.S. Marshals outside, he called 911 on himself. Units be advised for throwing apple. The caller came to kill Supreme Court Justice Rex Kavanaugh came from California, took a taxi from the airport to this location. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department will not tolerate this behavior. Threats of violence and actual violence against the justices, of course, strike at the heart of our democracy. Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin says Congress is now ready to approve a bill extending security to the immediate family members of the justices. What happened this week with Justice Kavanaugh is a reminder that we live in a dangerous place and these people are vulnerable and we should protect them. Republicans are blasting the delay. A disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. House Democrats want to expand the Senate bill to cover clerks and staff. Speaker Nancy Pelosi promises action soon. We had hoped that we could do it today, but we certainly will do it at the beginning of next week. All this coming as the January 6th hearings are set to begin tonight in prime time. And Washington gears up for a potentially volatile June. That's when major Supreme Court decisions, large-scale protests, and more tours at the Capitol will converge in an already heightened threat environment. There's, I think, a lot of vitriol. A major concern, the pending abortion ruling. Intelligence analysts warn of potential threats toward lawmakers, Supreme Court justices, abortion providers, and religious groups. The threats coming from both sides of the abortion debate. I am worried about the violence. I'm worried about the lone actor coming in and and doing something dangerous. Protests related to abortion and gun laws could bring thousands of people to Washington. Sources say Capitol Police are now adding overtime shifts. The focus is really on what the protests that are going on at the court, the protests that are going on at the homes of the justices. I understand that the tension could very quickly turn to, uh, you know, to, to the Capitol. 
Jake, just minutes ago, we got that 911 call that that suspect made to 911 when he admitted uh, that he had weapons and that he had planned to hurt that justice and himself. Jake. Whitney Wild, thanks so much. Appreciate it. From the rise in gas prices to the falls in the housing market, what a series of new economic numbers might mean for your money and the future of the American economy. Stay with us. In our money lead, the national average for a gallon of gas is now just three cents off the $5 a gallon mark, according to AAA. With higher inflation and interest rates, home mortgage applications dropped to the lowest level in 22 years. And for the first time since January, the number of people filing weekly unemployment claims hit 229,000, which economists were not expecting. Let's bring in CNN's Rahel Solomon. Rahel, let's start with housing Is the housing market finally cooling down? It does appear so, Jake. If you are looking for a house right now, you are finding it increasingly more difficult, which is probably why applications to uh, purchase a home, mortgage applications, dropped 6.5% compared to the week prior. This plus applications to refinance essentially at 22-year lows. And two things are happening right now, Jake. You have the price of a home going up, still about 20% higher than it was a year ago. And you have the cost to buy a home, the borrowing costs also going up. Take a look at mortgage rates right now. The average for a fixed 30-year sitting at 5.23%. But look at this chart. It sort of tells it all. A year ago, it was at 3%. So you're getting hit on both sides, Jake. Not only is the price of a home going up, but the cost to borrow to buy a home is also going up. It's becoming increasingly more affordable or less affordable for people to buy a home, especially first-time home buyers. Well, let's turn to uh, unemployment. Uh, Unemployment's very low, but unemployment claims rose. They're overall still considered low. What does that mean? The Fed is obviously focused on inflation right now. Yeah, so every Thursday morning, we get these uh, initial claims, essentially how many more Americans are filing for unemployment benefits. And the number this morning was 229,000, which is the highest we've seen since January, but still low, especially when you consider the average of these numbers over the last month. So what it means is that the jobs market is still very strong, but again, perhaps some sign of weakening. When I asked David Kelly of J.P. Morgan about this this morning, saying, look, does this worry you? He told me still too low for concern. We also got the jobs report on Friday, which indicated the same 3.6% unemployment, still 390,000 jobs being added to the economy. But here's where it might cause some concern for the Fed as it tries to lower inflation. Jake, with the jobs market being as hot as it is, two open jobs for every one person looking for a job, that means that people who are looking for work, they can demand more in terms of wages, which is great. However, that tends to mean higher prices. Companies tend to pass that on in terms of higher prices. And the Fed, of course, is trying to lower prices, trying to lower inflation. So this this becomes a very delicate uh, balancing act for them as they try to lower inflation. But again, uh, by and large, the jobs market's still very hot. All right. Rahel Solomon breaking it all down for us. Thanks so much. Turning to the health lead now, a possible link between COVID during pregnancy and neurodevelopmental disorders in children. A new study found babies who were exposed to COVID in utero were more likely to have delayed speech or motor skills by their first birthday than babies who were not exposed. And now researchers are calling for an investigation and say more data is needed. Here to discuss, Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the White House COVID-19 response coordinator. Dr. Jha, we should note these are preliminary findings from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. But what is your takeaway from the study? Yeah, so Jake, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, Look, this is part of a broader set of data 
uh, that kind of makes a compelling argument that pregnant women should get vaccinated when they are pregnant. Uh, we know that pregnancy itself is a high risk situation if you get COVID. Uh, so the complication risk is high. And then there's more and more emerging evidence like this one uh, that the babies uh, themselves can have negative effects. So lots of good reasons why uh, if you are pregnant, you should get vaccinated. It's a great way to protect yourself and the baby. Researchers say that the developmental disorders are delays in the basic milestones of infancy, such as rolling over, uh, reaching for objects, babbling, and that there are concerns for other potential long-term adverse health consequences. Now, we know vaccines don't stop a person from getting infected with COVID. They can just help you uh, deal with how bad the infection is. So what more can pregnant women really do to prevent this other than uh, getting vaccinated? Well, so first of all, let's be clear. Vaccinated and boosted actually can prevent infections, absolutely. And even if you get infected, uh, have much lower levels of virus. So I think that's probably the single most important thing you can do. Um, obviously, avoiding high-risk situations, super crowded indoor spaces when poorly ventilated places. There are those kinds of things that we know make a difference as well in reducing infections. Uh, but to me, at this point still, this number one thing is getting vaccinated and boosted is probably the best way to protect yourself. This reminds me, why haven't you guys, the CDC, the Biden administration, why haven't you changed the definition of fully vaccinated to include that booster shot that we all agree uh, is necessary and a needed part of the regimen? What? Why not change that? It seems obvious that uh, that the booster shot is is vital. Yeah. No. I, so first of all, I agree with you on the science here, Jake. Very clear. Every American uh, who is vaccinated needs three shots to be fully protected. Uh, that's what we sort of describe as being up to date. Uh, the definitional issue of a fully vaccinated or not is very much a CDC decision. Uh, a lot of factors go into that. But from a clinical and public health point of view, People need that third shot. That's what offers the best level of protection. Today, the Biden administration laid out its COVID vaccine rollout plan for kids under five. Vaccines for this age group might be available by the end of the month. I know a lot of parents very happy about this. But the latest polling from April shows only 18 percent of parents nationally say they are going to schedule a shot for their under five year old right away. How do you convince the other 80 percent or so to schedule that shot as soon as possible? Yeah. It's a great question, Jake. I start off by saying two things. First, uh, our job is to make sure that vaccines are widely avail available and easily accessible, right? That's the first step, just to make sure that happens. Second is if you go back to December of 2020 and look at the polling data on adults, about a third of adults said they were going to get vaccinated right away. About 80% have ended up getting a single shot. So my point on that is vaccine confidence builds over time. We're going to work with pediatricians, family physicians, faith groups, helping people answer questions they have and making sure that parents understand that the best way to protect their children is getting vaccinated. We don't expect this to happen overnight, but we do expect in the weeks and months ahead, we're going to see a lot more kids get vaccinated. According to the CDC, the 5 to 11 age group has right now the lowest rates of vaccination. 29% of kids in that age group completed the two-dose vaccination series compared to 59% of 12 to 17-year-olds, or 63% of 18 to 24-year-olds. Isn't it fair to say that this administration, as of right now, has failed to convince America's parents to get their youngest kids vaccinated? What, what's going to make this new age group, six months to five years, any different? Yeah, so, Jake, I, I think the key point here is vaccine uh, confidence builds over time. Uh, 12 to 17-year-olds have been eligible longer 
And we've seen vaccination rates rising even today. There are hundreds, about thousands, like five to 11 year olds going out, getting vaccinated. That's happening every day. We're continuing to focus on getting good information out to people that parents trust, doctors, nurses, uh, religious leaders, and also obviously making sure that it's extremely convenient and easy. We think this is a long game, and we think over the long run, that strategy is what's going to help override a lot of the misinformation out there and make parents comfortable knowing that this is the right thing to do for their kids. The CDC says more than 82 million doses of vaccines distributed across the country have gone to waste since the start of the pandemic. Do you worry we're going to see more of this if kids at five and under don't get vaccinated during this big White House push? Look, uh, the, the bottom line on this is we've gotten we got 700 plus million doses out, uh, obviously 200 million people vaccinated. When you're trying to make vaccines easily accessible, widely available, uh, you're not as you know, you're focused on making on that as your primary goal. And we're going to have some number of doses that are not going to be able to get into people's arms. We know that that's a part of uh, the cost of doing business here. Our focus is in really on making sure availability and accessibility come first. And with that, we think it's going to be the, the right way to prioritize making sure kids and adults get access to this vaccine. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, teed off. The PGA Tour takes action against big-name golfers participating in that tournament funded by the Saudis. But it's not the Saudis' record on human rights that the PGA is mad about. Stay with us. In the sports lead today, the PGA Tour rattling the world of golf, suspending legends such as Phil Mickelson and Sergio Garcia and Dustin Johnson because of their participation in the new Saudi-backed Live Tournament, which teed off today. And now the three major winners and more than a dozen other pro golfers are officially barred from future PGA Tour events. CNN's Alex Thomas is at the Live Tournament near London. And Alex, we should note... This is not the PGA Tour taking a moral stance against the Saudi-backed tournament because of Saudi Arabia's abysmal records on human rights or the murder of a Washington Post columnist. That's not the problem they have with this. No, Jake, because they had previously released PGA Tour players to play in Saudi Arabia for their partner, the European DP World Tour. They're not worried about the source of the money, just how much money the Saudis have because it could threaten their place as the most prestigious and most lucrative golf competition on the planet. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monaghan had a choice to make and he chose the nuclear option. It is now open civil war at the top of the professional men's game. A seething two-page memo released as the Live Golf players shortly after they teed off here, part of which said, I am certain our fans and partners who are surely tired of all this talk of money, money and more money will continue to be entertained and compelled by the world-class competition you display each and every week. That was aimed at the current members, the players who didn't jump ship. Almost a mafia movie-style snub to the breakaway players, almost like you're dead to me, leave a horse's head on your pillow. The Live Golf response was swift and direct. They said... Today's announcement by the PGA Tour is vindictive and it deepens the divide between the Tour and its members. This certainly is not the last word on this topic. The end of free agency is beginning. That's hinting at legal action. Ultimately, Live Golf has become the ultimate pay-as-you-play golf. And what I mean by that is you can play and then you pay by being suspended from the PGA Tour, Jake. Alex, golf is such a, a mental sport. Did this PGA Tour decision 
apparently affect any players in the tee box in England today. I mean, they played good golf. Phil Mickelson absolutely striped it down the first hole on his opening shot, and the crowd absolutely loved it. Lots of fans following him. I spoke to Sergio Garcia, former Masters champion, shortly after he finished, and he seemed really relaxed about it as well. He was one of those who quit the PGA Tour before playing here to avoid legal action, but it's certainly heading that way, in my opinion, Jake. All right, Alex Thomas, thanks so much. Appreciate it. In our pop culture lead today, a tribute from someone who dabbled in cartoons to a true professional, an icon globally in the field. Legendary artist Renan Lurie passed away last night in his sleep at the age of 90. He was an Israeli-American born in Egypt. He published his first book of cartoons when he was just 20. He went on to draw for Life magazine. He was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Renan Lurie, a true giant. May his memory be a blessing. Coming up, how some of the biggest names in the business are trying to influence gun negotiations in Congress. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, is anybody out there? That's one of the questions NASA scientists are hoping to answer as they prepare to study UFOs in a way they have never done before. Plus, a warning to all foreign fighters in Ukraine. A pro-Russian court in the East giving three captured POWs, two Brits and a Moroccan, death sentences, claiming they were Ukrainian mercenaries. And leading this hour, we're just hours away from the first primetime January 6th hearing. We're going to hear from new witnesses, including possibly members of Donald Trump's own family, Ivanka, Jared, plus a documentarian who was embedded with the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys. Committee members also say they will share never-before-seen images from that fateful day. The hearing, of course, is not just about the mob that stormed the Capitol that day. It's about a months-long campaign and conspiracy to undermine democracy in America. It's about a president and those around him desperate to hold on to power at any cost, even if it meant destroying the American experiment. Let's get right to CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju. Manu, the committee chairman, Congressman Benny Thompson, today said some of the videotaped interviews the committee will show tonight will also include individuals who have been charged for their actions on January 6th. Do you know who he's talking about? Well, it was a bit of a surprise, but still going to be a surprise because he would not explicitly say who that could be. Potentially uh, Enrique uh, Tario, of course, he's the Proud Boy leader who was charged with seditious conspiracy. He would not say whether or not we could expect to see some video of that. He also would not say whether or not, in fact, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump will be those Trump family members who will indeed be featured in today's testimony. But we do expect video depositions, depositions of some of the witnesses who testified to be shown uh, their video of their testimony, Trump family members, former Trump campaign aides, former Trump White House officials. This is a committee that has spent the past several months interviewing more than a thousand witnesses, 140,000 pages of documents. And what they are promising tonight is a vast array, a vast majority of new information that we have not yet seen, all of which attempting to put Donald Trump in the center of this effort to overturn the election on January 6th, the pressure campaign leading up to it, the violence that happened, and Donald Trump's inaction 
on that day. Now, we do hear, expect to hear from two live witnesses themselves, uh, one of whom was a Capitol Police officer, Caroline Edwards. She was one of the first to respond to the attack. She was injured that day, as well as Nick Kestet, who is the, who is the documentarian who was embedded with the militia group, the Proud Boys. So we'll hear their testimony as well. But, Jake, we do expect from what the committee is promising, new information. The question, how much does it change public opinion, which is in a lot of ways entrenched over this issue because it's, they're, they're, they've been uh, diving deep into this topic and promising a lot. Uh, Manu, tonight's just the first of several hearings in 2022. What can we expect in the days to week and weeks to come? Yeah, we expect this month to be filled with hearings. In fact, two are expected next week, and as well as uh, additional ones uh, through the course of this month, all of which leading up to a report that will come out later this year, probably before the midterm elections, detailing exactly what this committee found. So tonight will be the beginning of that effort to detail what they found, ultimately leading to that report as they try to race to complete this investigation in the coming months. All right, Manu Raju from Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Joining us now is a member of the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia. She served two decades in the Navy and is vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Congresswoman, you've said it's important that the committee look not just at the events of January 6th, but all the things that led up to it. But you hear Republicans saying there are so many issues plaguing American citizens right now where they live. Inflation, high gas prices, school shootings, the limbering lingering impact of COVID. Um, what's your response to that? Why does this matter? Well, you know, I'm only uh, several yards away from where this violent attack took place. Um, and every American who saw the violence that day, the attempt uh, to stop the functioning of our government, to disrupt the certification of the election results, um, and really to overthrow the norms of our democracy should be concerned. I agree there's lots of things going on. There's always lots of things going on, but that is absolutely not an excuse to brush this under the rug and not take a deep look. And, you know, we heard some video or some audio released yesterday of uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, and he clearly said a few days after this event happened that we've got to get to the bottom of this. We need a thorough investigation. And we know um, that there was a negotiation made between uh, Democrats and Republican leadership and the House and they, you know, decided the, on the terms for an independent commission, something like the 9-11 commission that could look into this. And even the chair, Benny Thompson of the Homeland Security Committee and John Katko, the ranking member, they came up with this agreement. Yeah. But somewhere in there, uh, essentially decided they didn't want the truth to get out. So Republicans essentially, you know, sabotaged that at the leadership level. It still passed the House, but it didn't pass the Senate. And, you know, here we are uh, with the tools we have to perform a very comprehensive investigation. As Manu said, we've interviewed over a thousand people, um, over 140,000 documents. And we'll be hearing from uh, some of those witnesses and their testimony tonight. Um, and then over the course of the next several weeks, um, we'll really go deep into the facts surrounding the events on January 6th. I don't know of any cable or network news channel that is not airing these hearings this evening except for one fox what's your take on that well you know just before i came on the air with you i was actually on fox news talking about this so i'll say that they're they're talking about it they're acknowledging the hearings are happening i put, think they're putting it on some second or third tier um you know cox uh, cha cable channel you know if your remote goes up to a thousand you might be able to find that one so it's a shame i mean all of the american public needs to hear about this it was truly a threat to our democracy and it's it's not, as some of these critics are saying, like something that happened 
in the past, a year and a half ago. The violent events of that day did, but the thing still persists persist right now. Um, you have the former President Trump out in Wyoming, for example, continuing to spread these lies about the election being stolen. Um, and, you know, these undercurrents and the different forces that led to the violence on January 6th, they're still a threat. And our committee, we're a legislative committee, one of our goals is to provide recommendations to prevent something like this from happening again in the future. And we take that very seriously. So, you know, my hope is that everyone will, will pause, will find one of the 95% of the networks that are going to have this and, and tune in. Uh, because it's really important for everyone to hear the facts. Your committee has promised new evidence that the American people have not seen before. Are there going to be new allegations of criminality as well? Um, We're going to cover a lot of information tonight. We're going to tie it to all levels of government uh, that were involved in this. And, you know, that question about criminality, I think that's something we'll address more thoroughly down the road. But, you know, it was very clear signal that Judge Carter sent in the Eastman case about releasing those emails. Um, He said that there is clear evidence that a crime might have been committed. That's the reason the emails were turned over to the committee. Um, And that's a clear signal. And, um, you know, we've found some of the same evidence in the work that we're doing. We just learned that uh, uh, after January 6th, former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, a member of the Trump cabinet, said she spoke with other members of the cabinet about the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. She says, quote, more than a few people in the White House considered the move. Will that be a part of the hearings at some point? Um, It is uh, certainly something uh, that we will consider. This is new information that came out from from her today, but we're all well aware that she resigned right after January 6th. So um, she, amongst many other people who were in the administration, were were close to the president, were familiar with his thought process, are, are exactly the kind of people that we have been hearing from and will continue to hear from throughout this investigation. After all the hearings are done, what's the best case scenario? What are you ultimately hoping comes out of all this? Well, as I said, you know, as a legislative committee, um, I hope that you know, being able to go through the facts of this, dig into you know, why did this happen, what are the things that led to this, and what are the vulnerabilities in our processes and our government agencies and departments, those kinds of things to prevent something like this from happening in the future. And you know, then the question's still out there. Um, you know, what was the what level did this go to? Will there be things referred further from this? Um, and I think that that's something that we will, um, you know, get to um, and develop throughout the process of the hearings. Virginia Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. And while lawmakers prepare for the hearings, the FBI is not done making arrests. A Republican candidate for governor in Michigan was led away from his home in handcuffs just today. And then she was arrested in dramatic fashion after claiming Florida was falsifying its COVID numbers. Now an independent investigation says her numbers do not add up. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead, the FBI has arrested a Republican candidate for governor in Michigan. Officials have charged Ryan Kelly on misdemeanor charges related to his involvement In the Capitol attack on January 6th last year, the charges include disorderly conduct and knowingly engaging in physical violence. Court documents say a confidential source worked with law enforcement to, quote, provide information on domestic terrorism groups in Michigan and was among the tipsters who identified Kelly. In a video taken on January 6th, Kelly's campaign has not yet responded to CNN's request for comment. Let us discuss Gloria Borger being arrested for participating in the January 6th insurrection Sure, that can hurt in a general election, absolutely. But hear me out. Might that actually help him 
in a Republican primary in Michigan? Sure. It could be a credential yeah. in the Republican primary. And on his, uh, his campaign posted on its Facebook page, I'm quoting here, political prisoner. So there you go. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a complicated race. You've already had a couple of Republicans drop out because they didn't uh, have enough signatures that were legal. So the Republican side is kind of up in the air. But I guarantee you when you hear from him, he's going to say that I was persecuted because I believe that the election was rigged. And the Republican base in a primary is going to say, well, you know, that's what we want. Although I gather Trump has not endorsed anybody. Not yet. Yet. Well, this yet. will help. This will, this, this will help get the endorsement. Vivian, in the, in the court's document, investigators make it clear that they've known about Ryan Kelly and him being at the Capitol, potentially for more than a year. What does this tell you about the ongoing Justice Department investigation and the methods? Well, this is something that the Department of Justice is getting a lot of criticism for, including from Democrats who say that they don't they haven't been moving fast enough um, on these investigations. And so um, with the case of Ryan, Ryan Kelly, he's been a known entity. He's been cited as being involved in armed protests against covid lockdowns in 2020 uh, and and other related activity. Um, against the current sitting governor, uh, Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer. So it's an it's a ongoing uh, problem in that he, they, he has repeatedly been cited in these incidents. And now, of course, with his involvement in January 6th, and of course one of the things that came up is that he was wearing similar clothing to what he was wearing in the so-called Judgment Day protests in Michigan, um, obviously is someone that should have been uh, called out earlier, but uh, it remains to be seen what the tactics are and why they hadn't moved any sooner on him, against him. David Urban, how does the January 6th belief system and false belief system and participation, how does it function in, I mean, it might help somebody win a primary, for instance, in uh, Mr. Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who was here in D.C. in January 6th, is now yeah. the Republican gubernatorial nominee. Um, does it it, it might help you get the nomination in the Republican Party, but is it ultimately a disqualifier in the general, do you think? Yeah, I think, listen, I think it's going to be the case. Well, it depends, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a broad spectrum of people who participated on January 6th. Did you come to January 6th and stand on the mall and, and, and participate, your, your exercise your First Amendment right? Or did you go breach the barrier, you know, hit people in the head with a fire extinguisher? There's a wide range of people who participated, right? Those who broke the law are going to get prosecuted and should be disqualified for participation in, in, in our system of government from here on out. And, and those who peacefully protested and stood on the mall and took a bus home and a bus back, should, you know, shouldn't be, there should be no consequences. So there's a broad range of things. And, and this gentleman in, 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 in uh, you know, Michigan, Michigan. You know, he's been charged. It, in the glorious part, right, like he hasn't been convicted yet. It may quite may be very beneficial for him. He'll say, I, I'm exercising my rights. This is a witch hunt. And yeah. Look at me. And, and, and the case is not going to trial for any time soon. I'm well, guessing. and he said he was there. Right. I mean, he's <clears throat> talked about being there. But I think he's on video. Yeah, he <laughs> is. Um, uh, not just being there, but being violent. Inviting people into the yes. Capitol. So yeah. I, here's that's what I think. That's the line you cross, right? You can't cross that line. I think that whether you were there and, you know, damaging property, beating on cops, threatening the life of the vice president... You're part of the system that believes in the big lie, mm -hmm. and that does matter in a general election. Now, it depends what state or what office you're running for, of course, but, you know, most Americans don't want to hear about the big lie anymore. Most Americans want to move on. Most Americans want our system of democracy to stand on its own two legs and not having people chopping them at the knees. Uh, so I do think 
you know, if, if I were running a campaign against somebody who believes in the big lie, I, I wouldn't let it go. So in addition to people wanting to move on from what happened that day, that horrible day, some people want to move on from what they said about that day. Uh, and I'm specifically <laughs> referring to House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Uh, take a listen to him earlier today. You said both publicly and privately after January 6th that you thought Trump bore some responsibility for the attack. Do you still feel like he was in any way responsible for January 6th? Look, I've answered that many times. I thought everybody in the country bared some responsibility based upon what has been going on, the riots on the streets, the others. Everybody in the country bears some responsibility? I don't bear Uh, any responsibility for January 6th. I'll tell you that much right now. And none, none. Michael Fanone doesn't bear any responsibility. David Urban yeah. doesn't bear any Well, again, again, listen, the people who broke the law, right, who are being prosecuted by DOJ, those are the people you blame. Those are the people that broke the law. Those are the people who were... Well, I guess the point is Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy had said that Donald Trump yes. bore I, I, some responsibility. I, I understand what he's doing. Yes. He's Even at that point, Gloria, I just think this. Listen, I think trying to assign responsibility for other people's actions to... Like, Donald Trump's not responsible for what I do. You don't think he incited the crowd? I don't, I don't. Then why did he assign responsibility five days after January 6th to Donald Donald Trump? And he comes out. I just don't know what he is so afraid of now. What happened when he went to see Trump in Mar-a-Lago? Why are they so afraid about the truth coming to light? Well, Well, the truth is out there. I mean, he, he is saying, I did not say or I did not believe what I said. Right. But he said it. He said it multiple times. Well, he said what he said. You know, he can't run away from it. Well, but that's exactly what he's doing. Kevin McCarthy, though, and just in terms of him trying to play both sides and trying to kind of save himself politically, uh, I think that these hearings are going to be um, a huge revelation for him in particular and something that is going to be very sensitive because we could really see him trying to dissuade, uh, for more than we already know, trying to dissuade the president and all of his advisors being Mm -hmm. against it, speaking out against it. Any evidence can, that they have against see him, some of his own members, well, then anticipating co- it. any contradictory evidence that they're going to mm-hmm. put forward in these hearings are going to be um, a hard thing for him to try to explain, especially now when he's come so strongly now in favor of former President Trump and just those who were out there on uh, January 6th. And we've seen uh, Trump cabinet officials uh, who were not in the cabinet at the time, Attorney General Bill Barr, mm-hmm. uh, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper and others, talking about how they think this is disqualifying, talking about how they, they don't want Trump to be the nominee. Um, today, for the first time, we heard Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who was in the cabinet on January 6th, who resigned shortly after, saying that she had a conversation with individuals, including uh, the, the Vice President Pence, about invoking the 25th Amendment just to get him out of the White House for the remaining, whatever it was, 19 days yeah, or so. Was, I, I, I thought that was a stunning revelation. We all know that she resigned immediately after January 6th with Elaine Chow, who also did, Mitch McConnell's wife, who was also uh, in the cabinet. But to go to the vice president, and I know that his staff was trying to keep him away from all of this, but to go to the vice president and say, do you think there's any possibility the 25th Amendment because the vice president would have to go along with that? And he said, no. But to hear Betsy DeVos, so conservative, uh, so pro-Trump, Uh, come out and say this today was remarkable. And I think a taste of what we may be hearing uh, on these hearings tonight and going forward. Because DeVos, it sounds like what she was really upset about is not just leading up to January 6th, but Trump not doing anything Anything. to stop it. Right. And I think, listen, I I, I think that, you know, Stephanie has a good point about do people in America care about January 6th? It's so long ago, right? There's so many things that people face every day now. Gas prices are high. There's so many things going on. Um, I, I think that, you know, there is a concern. There should be a concern about what happened that day. And, and, and I think she reflected that. I think it's, uh, you know, it was 
was very troubling. All right, great to have all of you here. Be sure to join me tonight for CNN special coverage of Attack on Democracy. The January 6th hearings, our coverage starts at 7 p.m. Eastern. The top Senate Democrat in the gun reform discussion say he thinks more than 10 Republican senators will eventually get on board. Some Republican senators are saying, however, not so fast. Stay with us. Sad news in our national lead, the U.S. Marine Corps today confirmed five Marines died when the plane they were in crashed yesterday in California. Let's go to CNN Pentagon correspondent Barbara Starr. Uh, Barbara, this crash involved an Osprey. It's a military plane that has a history of problems. What do we know about this crash? Well, this was a uh, tilt rotor aircraft that was based at an air station just north of San Diego flew about 150 miles due east into the California desert as part of a training mission. A good deal of training goes on out there in that very remote desert area. Five Marines now confirmed to have perished in the crash. Their families, of course, being notified. We will not get the identities uh, or the names of those who fell, those who perished in this crash until all the families are notified. An investigation will be underway, of course. This is an aircraft that has had a lot of high-profile mishaps over the years, Jake. Just in March, several weeks ago, another one crashed in Norway, uh, four Marines losing their lives in that crash. No indication any of these are related, but certainly the Marine Corps investigating the families getting the worst possible news. Jake? Barbara Starr at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Back in our politics lead, no deal on guns this week. That's according to Senator John Cornyn of Texas, the lead Republican negotiator on the Senate's bipartisan discussions to draft legislation addressing the nation's gun violence crisis. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, who's leading the talk for his side of the aisle, says he thinks enough Republicans will be on board to reach the 60-vote threshold to beat a filibuster. That would mean... 10 Republicans on board. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now live from Capitol Hill. And Lauren, the the top four Senate gun negotiators just met a short time ago. Where do the talks stand as of now? Well, a week was always probably an ambitious deadline to even getting a framework, Jake. But emerging from this meeting, Tom Tillis telling me that they are going to meet virtually again tomorrow. Yes, they have left town. Yes, they have left Washington, but they are going to continue these discussions. He said at this point, the broader contours of what they're talking about, red flag laws, more background checks on people between the ages of 18 and 21 who want to buy a gun like an AR-15. All of that is still on the table. What they're negotiating is the finer points of how exactly to do that. And one of the challenges here is that Republicans have been really all over the map within the conference as to what they would be willing to accept. Some of that's because this is a campaign season. People are running for re-election. Some of that is members are retiring and other members are simply fed up with where the country Country is with this gun violence and they're ready to try something different. Chris Murphy said there is a reason that this has not happened for decades because it's hard work as he came out of that meeting earlier today. So we're going to keep an eye on it. They're going to continue to work through the weekend, I'm told. But things moving forward just at a slower pace than many had hoped. One of the proposals being discussed is raising the age limit to purchase an AR-15 style assault weapon. Uh, from 18 to 21. Uh, You spoke with Senator Mitt Romney about that. What did he have to tell you? Well, this is a perfect example of some Republicans who are simply fed up. Senator Mitt Romney telling me earlier today that he would support raising the age that you could buy an AR-15 from 18 to 21 under federal law. Here's what he told me. 
having high schoolers have to wait until they're 21, I think, reduces the likelihood they're going to buy an assault weapon and be inclined to carry out uh, such an act. Um, I hope that's part of the final bill. If, uh, if not, well, we'll see what uh, is developed, and I hope that I'll be able to support it. And Romney's from the state of Utah, a state that prizes the Second Amendment. And I asked another Republican from out west, Senator Steve Daines of Montana, whether he could get there on raising the age. He told me absolutely not. He does not support that. And it's part of the reason why John Thune, the majority whip, told me earlier today that he views that issue as off the table because at the end of the day, he doesn't want to just get 60 Republican votes. He wants members to feel comfortable enough that he can get 70, 75 Republican votes. If that's the goal, something like raising the age when you would buy an AR-15, that just is not going to pass. All right, Lauren Fox, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now, Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California. She's a member of the House Oversight Committee. Congresswoman, thanks so much. For joining us, um, just to remind our viewers or inform them if they don't know, the gun violence debate is a personal one for you. Uh, you were shot five times on the tarmac around the 1978 Jonestown massacre. Your boss, Congressman Leo Ryan, plus three journalists and a Jonestown cult defector, all of them were killed. How does or does that impact how you view this issue? Uh, of course it does, Jake. Uh, anyone who's been a victim of gun violence, has had their body ripped open, uh, has a vested interest in wanting to make sure no one else endures that. Uh, two months in a hospital, 10 surgeries, uh, skin grafts, uh, divots in my leg, holes in my arm. Uh, let's be really clear about this. We have a country that is so committed to a gun culture that we won't even consider having 18 to 21-year-olds pause before they're allowed to buy an assault weapon. And we have had two 18-year-olds that have massacred over 30 people just in a couple of weeks. And if what we're saying is that what we're going to be willing to do is basically have a background check. The background checks of these two gunmen won't show that they have committed a felony or that they've been a misdemeanor domestic violence uh, abuser or that they have been deemed to be uh, mentally defective. So what are we doing? We're doing nothing. Now, I absolutely applaud Senator um, Chris... Going blank now because I'm just so emotional Chris, about it. Chris Murphy. Uh, I, I applaud Senator Chris Murphy, who I've served with in, in the House before, um, and he's going to do whatever he can to get something, because we have to show a pattern of doing something. But I've got to tell you, the American public is scared. I sat in that oversight hearing yesterday and heard Dr. Guerrero talk, talking about how one of the children who had was deceased was decapitated. Another child had their whole body in shreds that you can't even identify these children but for the clothes they were wearing. An assault weapon is so deadly and can create such carnage over a short period of time that it is, it is so lethal that we have to at least prevent these youngsters from buying them. It doesn't mean they can't shoot them if their family has them. It doesn't mean that they, they can't practice with them. I mean, not that I want to see assault weapons being used at all, but this is just saying, wait until you're 
frontal lobe has developed to a point where you have some judgment and that impulse is not going to take hold of you, where you go out and buy a gun and then three hours later assassinate people. Yeah. Let's talk about red flag laws for a second because the Buffalo shooting, that racist killer uh, in Buffalo who targeted um, and killed 10 African Americans in that grocery store, he had been um, flagged. Uh, by his teachers. He had written an essay in his senior year of high school the year before saying uh, that he wanted to commit a murder-suicide, and he had to talk to cops, and he was under observation for a day, and he later talked about how he had talked his way out of it. But still, even with that intervention by his teachers and police, no one sought to get a red flag, in other words, the protective order that would adjudicate it so that he could not purchase a firearm in the short term. Um, the teachers didn't do it. The police didn't do it. His parents didn't do it, etc. Even though New York does have a red flag law, does there need to be a public education campaign uh, in states that have these laws? Uh, in addition to, I know you would prefer that there, I know you would like there to be a national red flag law of some sort. Do people need to know about these things? Well, I think Obviously, they need to know about these laws that exist, but there's always a real reluctance to label children. You don't want to somehow, you know, put them in a situation where they become, um, you know, criminals by labeling them in some way. So I know the school teachers are reluctant um, to do that. And in this case, you had a teacher that identified that through an essay. So you had something that was tangible. It wasn't just, you know, a demeanor. Uh, it was tangible, and yet um, there was an unwillingness of the parties to flag that particular individual. I think that's a, 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 law, that's a real high bar, and we are just going to save so many more lives if we just prevent them from getting these assault weapons until they're 21. And yet we're not willing um, to do that, it appears, on the Senate side. The CEOs of more than 200 American companies, from Levi's to Dick's Sporting Goods to Bloomberg, sent a joint letter to the Senate today demanding, quote, bold, urgent action addressing gun violence in the wake of the recent mass shootings. It reads in part, quote, communities that experience gun violence struggles, struggle to attract investment, create jobs, and see economic growth. We urge the Senate to take immediate action. Gun violence can be prevented. Our families, our communities, and our places of business are depending on you. We just saw Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney come out in favor of raising the age limit for the purchase of uh, AR-15-style weapons. Do you think we've reached a critical mass in this country to act, or are you skeptical? So I actually think we are, we are there. I guess I'm employing the American public to make this their litmus test for anyone they're voting for in November. Uh, that will change the hearts and minds of some senators that are reluctant. Look what happened to uh, Chris Jacobs in New York. He's the Buffalo congressman. He came out in support of assault weapons. All of the local elected Republicans and the Republican Party in his area withdrew their support for him, and he decided not to run for re-election. You mean he, he came out in support of raising the age to, uh, from 18 to 21 for the purchase of those weapons? That's correct. Yeah. And so that's the lesson for all my colleagues on the House side. Don't do that because you're going to lose your job. Well, how about... Um, losing the lives of so many youngsters in our country. What do we stand here for? Uh, We have a responsibility. We have already had 18,000 people die in this country from gun violence, 245 mass shootings. 
Last year, if you look at the European Union, about the same size, actually larger than the United States in population, they had 2,000 deaths. 2,000 yeah. deaths. We are abnormal, and we have got to put some constraints on young people accessing guns. They can't buy a handgun, but they can buy an assault weapon? That's crazy. And it, it's time for us to speak up as the American people and make this the litmus test in November. Congresswoman Jackie Spear of California, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Three foreign fighters are sentenced to death in Ukraine by a pro-Russian court. What's the crime they're accused of? That's next. In our world lead right now, President Biden is hosting world leaders in Los Angeles for the Summit of the Americas. One of the top issues being discussed is immigration and migration. This has an estimated 5,000 migrants travel through Mexico towards the U.S. border. CNN's Matt Rivers was with those migrants in Tijuana. Jake, when leaders at the Summit of the Americas are talking about immigration issues, part of what they're talking about is essentially this. I'm at an overcrowded migrant shelter in Tijuana, Mexico. There's more than 400 migrants staying here right now at a facility that is certainly not designed to house that many people. I mean, these tents here were put up recently. Hola, que tal? These, these uh, tents here were put up just in the last few months to handle some of the overflow. There's people here from all over the world, including from other parts of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. The Biden administration hoped that the presidents of those four countries would attend this summit, but all four of those presidents declined to attend. It makes comprehensively discussing immigration issues at this summit that much harder for the administration. Jake. All right, Matt Rivers, thanks so much. Let's go now to CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's in Los Angeles with President Biden. Caitlin, is the White House addressing at all this migrant caravan? They're not really getting into specifics on it, Jake, or how concerned they are about what it's going to contribute to an already tough situation that's happening on the U.S. southern border, though it's obviously a big concern for them because a migrant caravan like the one that is emerging in southern Mexico right now is precisely the kind of reason why a summit like this can be so critical. And it's also why it's put those absences of key leaders at the forefront of this. And it's kind of loomed over the agenda that the White House had hoped to promote while President Biden was here in L.A. hosting this summit. And when you don't have key leaders who are critical to having discussions about the migrant crisis, like the president of Mexico, the leaders of Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. That's why it creates those issues to have real substantive conversations that could amount to progress when it comes to tackling the migration crisis, which White House officials have made no secret. That is something that is obviously of high concern to them. And so when you talk about what they're talking about when it comes to migration or today, the focus has really been on climate here, Jake. That has been some initiatives that President Biden is talking about right now. He's been discussing with world leaders, getting commitments from some of the Caribbean leaders as well. And so when there are those key absences, it does weigh on an agenda like that, that they are trying to promote and have that critical progression. But when the president was asked just a few moments ago by my colleague, Kevin Liptak, if he's concerned at all about the impact that these absences of these leaders like the president of Mexico is having on this summit, Jake, he offered a pretty firm answer saying no. Caitlin Collins in Los Angeles, thanks so much, appreciate it. Turning to Russia's war on Ukraine now, a pro-Russian court in the embattled Donetsk region has sentenced three foreign fighters to death, according to Russian state media. Russia says the three men, two British and one Moroccan, fought for the Ukrainian military in Mariupol and were captured in mid-April by Russian forces. CNN's Matthew Chance is live in Kravery, uh, Ukraine. Matthew, did these foreign fighters have any legal recourse here? Can they appeal? 
Um, they can, yes, uh, within a month. And the lawyer representing them in the court in, in, in DPR, that breakaway region uh, of Ukraine, says they're going to do that. But the truth is, is that this isn't a real country. You know, they're self-declared as an independent state. They're only recognised by Russia. No one else in the world recognises the legitimacy of this court. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's not clear what that would achieve. Um, what the Ukrainians say is that they want these people to be treated as prisoners of war. They regarded them as people who were legitimately part of their armed forces. And there are Geneva conventions in place to protect people in their position. But the fact is, it's not going to be an illegal appeal, a legal appeal that, that, that gets them off this or gets them out of this situation. They're probably going to be come chips in some kind of negotiation in a prisoner swap. That's what the expectation, I think, is. Um, behind closed doors, both here in Ukraine and in Britain, where, of course, there is a lot of focus on these developments. Today, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky is warning that millions may starve if Russia does not allow Ukraine to export grain. Russia has obviously been stealing Ukrainian grain. What would it take to open up these ports and, and allow Ukrainians to get back to the business of, of being the breadbasket of, of the world, according to Russia? Well, I mean, it's a it's a it's a, a negotiation that's that's underway. It hasn't come to anything yet because there are lots of obstacles in the way of of an agreement. Uh, first start, the Russians want the port that the grain goes through to be Mariupol, which they recently took over. It's virtually destroyed, but the port facilities are functioning. But of course, it's under Russian control. The Ukrainians reject that, saying they need it to be a port like Odessa, which is under Ukrainian government control, and the, the Russians have rejected that. Uh, it would also require a security guarantee in the Black Sea, the seaway, the waterway, uh, to you know, get that grain out. And that's going to involve the Turkish Navy to provide protection. And, of course, the Ukrainians or a third party demining the seas to allow cargo vessels to pass through without being blown out of the water. And so it is a very complicated deal if it's going to happen. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. New details just in about that tragic Uvalde shooting. We'll be right back. We do have some breaking news for you in our national lead, horrifying new details from the school shooting in Uvalde. According to the New York Times, new documents and video collected as part of the investigation into the police response, or lack thereof, that information shows that more than a dozen students in the classroom remained alive for more than an hour before officers entered the classroom. The documents also revealing that the officers were aware that some of the students needed urgent medical attention and still did not go into the classroom. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Uvalde for us. Omar, this reports as officers were waiting for more protection before breaching the classroom. That's right, Jake. They didn't feel it was safe enough at points. They were, bottom line, they were aware they were in, aware there were injured students inside this classroom before making the decision to breach. This is according to a New York Times review of new investigative documents and videos. I want to read you some of the quotes uh, that were pulled from the reports that were reviewed. One in particular saying, people are going to ask why we're taking so long. A man who investigators believe to be Chief Pete Arredondo could be heard saying, according to a transcript of this officer's body camera footage. Another quote from this is, we're trying to preserve the rest of the life in here, basically saying that 
they had cleared other classrooms before making the decision to breach into this one, again, according to the Times. Now, according to CNN's timeline of events, it was around 11.45 a.m. that officers were on the scene calling for additional resources, but per this reporting, as many as 19 officers had gathered in the hallway and were ready to breach, but that door is locked. That came at 12.30 p.m., according to the transcript reviewed by the New York Times. And the final quote I'm going to read for you here is, if there's kids in there, we need to go in there. That's what one officer could be heard saying, according to these documents. Another responded, though, whoever is in charge will determine that. That, of course, becomes the crux of what was the fallout from the decision-making over the course of this, was why didn't officers breach this door sooner? It's, of course, what the what these documents are giving insight to it seems that they felt they were overpowered at points and they chose to prioritize kids that were in other portions of the school before coming back to the decision on whether they were going to breach this classroom again according to the times reporting it's also the centerpiece of these multiple investigations playing out not just here at the local level with the county district attorney but also at the state level the house investigative committee met today to look at some of this new evidence and hear testimony from multiple members of the texas department of public safety really to get to the bottom of what actually happened in these moments and clarity has come bit by bit but i can tell you jake for many in this community it's not coming fast enough the news is, is saddening and infuri infuriating at the same time. Oh, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Our out-of-this-world lead now, NASA is putting together a team of scientists to, to study UFOs in a way they never have before. NASA says that, that scientists want to learn more about UFOs for science and for security reasons. NASA did note that, quote, there is no evidence UAPs, that's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, a.k.a. UFOs, no evidence UAPs are extraterrestrial in origin, unquote. This appears to be part of the latest public push by the government to make the study of UFOs more mainstream. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. I'll see you in an hour for special coverage of the January 6th committee hearing. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.